This is Where We Meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy, and this show is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Taos Center for the Arts would like to recognize that it operates on the homelands of the Red Willow people of Taos Pueblo. We'd like to honor the importance of Native and Indigenous cultures within our community and within the land we live, learn, and exist on. On today's show, we speak to Dr. Sharon Erickson Nepstad, a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of New Mexico. Her research spans the globe, focusing on social movements, nonviolent movements, and the role of religion, specifically Catholicism, in social movements. Dr. Nepstead has been writing about Catholic activists for over 25 years. Being more interested in how lay people put the teachings into action, Nepstead's recent work, Catholic Social Activism, recognizes the force that religion has within society. She writes about those involved within social movements at the grassroots level in contemporary American Catholicism. In this conversation, we hear about solidarity organizations founded by missionaries in Central America as well as in the United States, the influence of priests and nuns on U.S. foreign policy, the spirit of service in religious traditions, and how movements engage with religion to promote social change. Here's the conversation with Dr. Nepstead. So you've been writing about Catholic activists for over 25 years as a sociologist of religion and a researcher of social movements. I wonder if we can actually just start by discussing what it means to be a sociologist of religion. That's a big question, but it's an important one because I think we're all aware of how influential religion is in society, particularly American society today. Religion is something you cannot separate out from politics, from culture, from history. And so as a sociologist of religion, we're interested in how religion is a force in society, how it brings about change, or maybe how it tries to prevent change. That's a succinct answer, I guess. (laughs) Well, uh, kind of along those lines, how did you find your way, one, to writing and studying religion, and then specifically Catholic activists? I didn't intend to. It was somewhat accidental, which isn't uncommon, perhaps, uh, in academic fields, that once you get into research, it leads you on to other areas that you hadn't initially anticipated. So my interest in religion actually started when I was working on my PhD and writing my dissertation, and I was interested in the Central America Solidarity Movement, a movement in the 1980s that mobilized to try and change U.S. foreign policy, particularly towards Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And I set out to interview a variety of different solidarity organizations, some of which were socialist, far leftist, um, and almost every organization began by telling me their history, which often started with, with missionaries. And so oftentimes what the story of these solidarity organizations was is that there had been a movement in the 1960s in which the Vatican, of course, during Vatican II, recognized that there was a massive shortage of priests, and therefore they mandated that about 10% of priests and nuns from northern countries should go to southern countries to try and revitalize the church. So there was a massive shift of of religious people from the U.S., and they were sent to Central America. And initially, they wanted to try to bring back people into the church. They felt that they had lost the church. The church had lost their members. And so the first thing that they did is they went out into these communities and they started talking to people and they realized there was no way that they could address the spiritual needs of these communities without also addressing the very difficult um, material circumstances that they were living in, that people were first and foremost wanting to put food on the table and make sure that there was shelter for their families. 
and spiritual matters were secondary when you are living in those kind of circumstances. So they began working in these communities, and the more that they learned about the daily lives of individuals in these countries, the more they realized that the church had to address the socioeconomic and political conditions that were shaping their lives. And ironically, you know, they had gone down to try and bring people back into the church. But what often happened is these missionaries found themselves being converted to the views of the peasants or the urban poor that they were working with and began to realize that their conditions were shaped by structural inequalities that dated back to the colonial period. And so it wasn't enough to just say, we're going to help you develop your spiritual life. You really had to change the structures of those societies. And in Central America during the 1960s and 70s, it was largely a reflection of a colonial period in which the land was concentrated in the hands of a small minority. And even after independence from Spain, that small minority then continued to not only hold the land, which was the primary form of of economic growth, that that was the source of kind of the ability to earn a living, but they also controlled political power. And it meant that it was very, very difficult to change these circumstances. And when people tried, these elites often then called in multinational corporations and asked them, you know, if we give you access to the land, if we give you really good um, circumstances where you can hire labor that aren't subject to the same kind of labor laws that you experience in the U.S. or in Western Europe, Um, will you kind of back us up? And so it became really difficult to try and bring about reforms within the system because the system was biased towards the elites with a backing from powerful international companies. And so this is the context, of course, in which liberation theology emerged and people began to talk about sin, not just as individual wrongdoing, but as structural sin, that you can set up a society in a way that is sinful because it exploits some people for the benefit of others, that it sets up structures of power so that some people benefit at the expense of others. So liberation theology begins to talk about the social and political implications of faith these uh, priests and nuns are transforming their old worldview. So many times these priests and nuns would say, we went down there to convert people, but they converted us. And as they became involved, sometimes in these liberation struggles, they began to realize that a lot of the roots of these inequalities were in their home country. In many cases, some of these priests and nuns were um, exiled. They were kicked out for causing trouble. And they came back to the U.S. and said, well, we have to continue to work on these issues because multinational corporations are often in our home countries, or U.S. foreign policy is backing these elite oligarchies that run the government. Um, And so to really change things, we have to pressure our own government in the United States to change its policies so that the people of Central America can begin to restructure their society. So you have kind of this reverse conversion experience going on, and all these priests and nuns are in the U.S. working on these issues. And um, as I was doing my research, as a qualitative researcher, you kind of have to follow the leads. And so this pattern kept emerging over and over where these solidarity organizations, even very kind of secular, socialist-oriented ones would say, we were founded by a former missionary to Nicaragua or to Guatemala. And we began working on these issues uh, of U.S. foreign policy. And I found this a very interesting question. I realized I had to follow this story about the role of religion, but it was also fascinating to me how these former priests and nuns, not only their own conversion story, but they were particularly effective activists. They were able to go in front of Congress 
and speak out against, for example, aid packages to the Nicaraguan Contras or um, military packages that were being sent down to the military regime of El Salvador. And they couldn't be easily dismissed. They weren't like, you know, fringe left groups. They weren't students that people could say they're just young and naive. These were priests and nuns who had a certain amount of credibility, but they also had credibility in their congregations. So they were particularly effective at mobilizing people in a way that secular activists were not able to do. So that kind of got me interested in the role of religion and social movements and the role that religion can play, not just in mobilizing people, but providing resources to sustain a struggle over time and to build transnational links, frankly. This is a little bit of a side question. Did you grow up religious? I did, but not the Catholic religion. And um, that, that got me interested in radical Catholicism. And I discovered that many people after reading my work think that I'm a radical Catholic, but I'm not a Catholic and I'm actually um, happily secular. But I found this very interesting in part because of, I think, the, the common belief that religion is inherently conservative. Many people think of Catholicism as pro-life, anti-divorce, anti-LGBTQI, and that's certainly true of some segments of Catholicism, but there's also segments of Catholicism that, in my mind, have actually been at the forefront of radical social activism and kind of the architects of new styles of resistance. Now, that's not my background. I was raised, to get back to your question, I was raised actually in an evangelical background, although the evangelicalism of my youth is not quite what we see today. But even there, I think there's a common perception that religion is kind of a status quo preserving conservative force. And even in, uh, I think, evangelicalism today, which is much more conservative than evangelicalism that I was raised in, there's still a segment, a minority, but a sizable minority, that is uncomfortable with the politicization that we're seeing today. So I believe 78% of white evangelicals in the U.S. voted for Donald Trump in the last couple of elections, but that means there's 22% that did not. And some of them, I think, are really starting to become uncomfortable with the direction of that tradition. And so it's always important, at least in my thinking, to recognize that these religious groups are not so homogeneous as we understand, and that actually the roots of change often come from those who are dissenting within a tradition. And in my own experience, I found evangelicalism growing up with it too narrowly focused on kind of personal relationships with Christ, and the social implications were not as important or as prioritized. And when they were, they tended to be certain kinds of issues sexual morality versus poverty and homelessness. And so very early on as a young adult, I was no longer in the church. So yes, in some ways I have a religion, uh, religious background that perhaps is probably the biographical roots of my interest in religion and movements, but not directly Catholicism. And certainly now from a secular perspective is how I write. This is where we meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy. We're speaking with sociologist Dr. Sharon Erickson Nepstead, who talks about the sanctuary movement, an active social and religious-based response to American immigration policies in the 1980s. The Refugee Act of 1980, signed into law by President Carter, raised the number of refugees allowed to enter the United States from 17,400 to 50,000 and adopted United Nations protocols, including a revised definition of the word refugee. 
However, in the 1980s, the Reagan administration interpreted the influx of Guatemalans, Nicaraguans, and Salvadorians seeking asylum from persecution as, quote, economic migrants, denying nearly all entry into the United States. The sanctuary movement was in response to these immigration policies that made it difficult for Central Americans to seek and be granted refugee status in the United States. While it drew from many aspects of Christian theology, the root was in compassion and concern for those fleeing violence. In this next segment, Dr. Nepstead shares the beginnings of her research into religious involvement and speaks of the sanctuary movement. Back to the conversation. The original sanctuary movement was an ecumenical effort that started in the early 1980s, originally kind of a collaboration between Quakers in Tucson and Presbyterians, but very quickly expanded to include quite a number of Catholic churches as well as um, Jewish synagogues. And I was aware that there was something here in the tradition of religion broadly speaking, that motivated people, that there's a spirit of altruism, there's a spirit of service in those religious traditions that lends itself well to social movement activism. And the sanctuary movement of the 1980s really was at the forefront of saying, well, we're willing to take risks on behalf of Nicaraguans. And at that point, it was Salvadorans and Guatemalans coming into the United States, fleeing the civil wars and seeking asylum and quickly realizing that they were not going to get asylum going through the system. And so you had religious groups saying, well, if if our government won't protect these individuals whose lives we know are endangered, then we will do it. And they did it illegally, right? They they took people into their church and built on this longstanding religious tradition, this Judeo-Christian tradition of declaring one's uh, sanctuary as a safe haven for people who are fleeing persecution. So I, I was aware and attuned to some of these dynamics and very interested because this isn't the same set of tactics that you always see secular movements taking on and they're drawing on the cultural resources of their religious heritage to try and be relevant in the world. And there is there's always different trends within religion, some of which want to isolate themselves from the world, kind of stay out of the violence and the sin of the world, and others who say, no, it's our obligation to try to engage with the world and make it more just and more humane and less violent. And they've done that in very interesting ways, whether it's the sanctuary movement or some of the other work I've done on the Catholic left that opposed the Vietnam War and uh, really became a force to say protest is not enough. That protest is doing basically nothing more than stating your opposition. And if we really want to end these wars, it's our moral obligation as people of faith to obstruct a war, not just to denounce it, but actually do something to try to stop it. So you're approaching this stuff, I mean, obviously, from a researcher point of view, from an academic um, angle. When I hear you talk about it, I kind of feel like happy or inspired. I'm like, oh, yeah, religion. It's actually good in some ways. And I wonder if you personally, through this research, has your own notions or your own maybe even like feeling about these large institutions uh, that really do wield a lot of power. I would say, has that moved or are you, would you say, you know what? Yes, all of this is actually kind of a positive force for humanity, but there also are all of this other thing that maybe in some ways is is not or is oppressive. Do you have anything to say to that? <laughs> yeah, um, certainly anybody looking at history and looking at contemporary American dynamics can see that religion can be a force um, that can be powerfully oppressive, that can be hurtful. Um, the Catholic 
sexual abuse scandals that have also now been revealed in other places like the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, that's very real and that's very tragic and there's no way to dismiss the harm that's been inflicted there. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that institutions are full of people and those people are very diverse. And I actually, I always marvel as someone who's not Catholic at how the umbrella of Catholicism can embrace so many different traditions. So you have extremely conservative groups, and then you also have extremely progressive groups advocating for liberation struggles, um, breaking the law to protect refugees. It's all within one institution. And so I think it's important for us to be careful when we're talking about the role of religion to recognize that it's a multifaceted institution. It's not under the control of any one particular person, even the popes. Uh, are varied in their perspectives, as we can see from the, our current Pope to the last one. Um, there's a wide range of views. And like any institution, probably, it has the capacity to, to be oppressive and promote forces that uh, limit people's lives. But it also has the capacity, because it's full of humans who have agency, to be a force for good. And uh, in writing this book about Catholic social activism, I wanted to let people know who people who are of a Catholic faith, that there is this other perspective that perhaps they're not reading about in, in history books, perhaps they're not being taught that at church, but there is a long-standing tradition within Catholicism, but probably of most religious traditions, of people using their faith to promote change, to promote equality, to promote justice, and have done so in ways that have made a difference and really have been transformative. So as a a distinguished professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of New Mexico, you referred to this before, your research really spans the globe um, and focuses on social movements, nonviolent movements, and what we've been discussing, Catholic activism. So I'm curious, how did you find your way to UNM? Do you have research ties that are specific to the Southwest region or, or not? I don't have research ties specifically to the Southwest region. I'm always interested in movements, no matter where they are. And of course, you know, I get criticized sometimes by historians who say, but you're you're talking about dynamics all over the world and not going in depth. Um, and that, of course, is the task of historians and area study scholars to really understand the specific circumstances. Um, I'm interested in the phenomenon broadly. So how are movements engaging with religion in ways that promote social change? And I'm interested in this, not just in the United States, but how it's been happening all over the world. Um, and kind of come back to your question, how I got to UNM. Uh, it's really a much longer route that um, started for me when I was in college. I became interested in social movements and um, I became particularly concerned about how movements could bring about change without violence. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, many, many years ago, I watched um, a film about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for the first time as an 18 year old, I had seen what those nuclear weapons could do. And I just left with the conviction that we've got to find alternatives. There's always going to be conflict and yet violence isn't inevitable. So what are the alternatives? And that made me start reading about people who tried to bring about change, who were challenging serious forms of inequality, but were doing it without resorting to violence. So of course I read Gandhi and of course I read King and I read um, The Rose on Civil Disobedience. And at the same time, then you could see these movements all over the world beginning to experiment with some of the ideas that, of course, Gandhi was the first to experiment with on an international scale. 
And I, after college, I went and I moved to what was then West Germany. And I was working at an international peace organization. And we did a variety. It was an ecumenically focused group. And so I worked with Quakers and I worked with Catholics and Protestants and other groups that were all kind of engaged at that time around the nuclear weapons uh, issue and the nuclear arms race, because many of those weapons were being stationed in Central Europe. And I lived there at a time when the wall came down. And we actually collaborated with East German activists who, throughout the late 1980s, really didn't believe that change was going to happen in their lifetime. This was, the East German Republic was seen as the model socialist republic. The president of East Germany had said the Berlin will last another 100 years. But incrementally, they were organizing. And then through a series of events, they were able to transform that that state within a matter of months. And so I became very interested in how people um, use nonviolence. And again, in the East German case, they were largely organizing through the East German church. And not because everybody was religious, it was a largely secular state, but the Protestant church in East Germany was what we call a free space. It was one of the few places that was autonomous from the state. And therefore, it was one of the few places that people could organize, where they could strategize, where they could develop a culture of resistance. So again, I kept coming back to this. How is it that this role of religion is so important in many of these struggles? In the Philippines, it was the Catholic Church that literally trained people by bringing in nonviolence educators and going from parish to parish and training people not only in the philosophy of nonviolence, but how you mobilize to form election observers uh, during a presidential election. So I recognize that the church was providing a very important role, not only as a free space as it was in East Germany, or as kind of a network as it was in the Philippines, but it was also a place where resources were available. And because of their transnational ties, the Catholic church doesn't just live in one country. It could quickly mobilize material support, financial support, um, moral support, international pressures. So my interest in nonviolence, my interest in the role of religion kind of came together in a lot of these movements that I was both observing and in some cases very closely um, supporting. And uh, I decided actually as the Berlin Wall came down and some of the activists I was working with, I'm like, we have to document this. We have to understand how this worked so successfully. And for me, that was such an important question because it was also happening at the same time that Tiananmen Square was happening. And Tiananmen Square in China, of course, um, ended in, in a massacre of over 3,000 people. So why did it work in East Germany in 1989, but it failed in China in 1989? So I went to graduate school to study these things. Yeah. Uh, I did my PhD in Colorado. And as most academics, um, you have to be willing to move just about anywhere in the country. So I, I was at a couple of other uh, universities before I came to New Mexico. And I came to New Mexico in part, um, I was hired to be the study to the director of religious studies. Um, I also wanted to be here. My, my children are Central American and I wanted them to be in a place where they heard a lot of Spanish spoken, where they looked like any other kids. I've been at the University of Southern Maine before and um, I wanted them to grow up in a diverse environment. So I came here and found that like, uh, Many other places, there are lots of movements happening here as well that um, continue to spur my thinking about these issues. So a bit ago, you mentioned some of the criticism that you get about your work is like that you're not necessarily diving deep, deep, deep down. You're looking like a cross um, and, and looking at all of these and how they're parallel to each other globally. 
What is some of the critique that you get about these ideas and this research, either in large or, or even a small way? I think academics always have to be a little bit humble about um, the applicability of their research. Um, on the one hand, I really wanted to spend my life energy and my work making people aware of all the alternatives, the alternatives within religion, that if faith is important to you, it doesn't mean that a faith has to be tied to a particular political agenda or a particular um, kind of conservative or progressive position, but to recognize the complexity uh, in terms of being a social movement scholar, I really wanted people to learn the lessons of these movements. And of course, you can't directly import something that happened in one country to another country, but there's actually fascinating research about the connections, for example, between Gandhi's movement and the African-American struggle. And of course, we know that Martin Luther King Jr. was influenced by Gandhi. He writes about that explicitly, but there was a whole period of time where early civil rights leaders were going and visiting uh, in India and asking Gandhi about this and then experimenting with, there's really interesting research where they realized our conditions aren't exactly the same as what Gandhi's conditions were. First of all, Gandhi was a Hindu and he was operating in a different religious context, but he was also operating in a colonial context in which Indians were the majority against a British minority colonial rule. And of course, in the United States, African-Americans were a minority. And so they had to figure out how do these ideas translate to this context? How does it translate to a Christian context? How can we take these ideas that Gandhi developed, ideas like Satyagraha that really have roots in a Hindu and a Buddhist uh, kind of tradition? How do we translate that to what makes sense to Christians in the United States? And there was a period of experimentation and they had to adapt these. And it's not a perfect importing of these techniques, but I think it's still important for people to build on these traditions and to take these ideas and then spend the time of figuring out how might they work in our own context. We see this as well with the nonviolent strategies. We know, for example, that the Northern Irish Civil Rights Association built its ideas off of the U.S. African-American Civil Rights Movement. And then more recently, some of the post-Soviet states like Serbia, they began experimenting with these ideas of nonviolence. And when they successfully were able to get rid of Slobodan Milosevic, they began taking their ideas and spreading it to other locations. So, you know, we talk about these color revolutions and they follow this model. That's because people are, are talking about and, and sharing these ideas. And I think that's very important with the caveat to say, you can't just import it or export it without spending that time to figure out how to adapt it to your own particular conditions. You know, I'm criticized sometimes. I wrote this book in which I looked at East Germany and China and I compared uh, what happened in South Africa and in Panama. And some critics would say, well, you don't speak Mandarin and you don't necessarily have the in-depth knowledge of all these cases. And I rely on the work of historians and area study scholars to provide that. I, I see it as a kind of a collaboration academically that different fields have different expertise and skills. And my job as kind of a comparative sociologist is to say, okay, building on their understandings, on their historical research, what are the patterns that I can see happening on a more global level? Because it's important for us to be sharing these stories. And part of my frustration, if you look at U.S. history books, every kid who goes through a public school will learn about Rosa Parks and that she refused to give up her seat and that launched the Montgomery bus boycott. But they're often really simplistic historical accounts. Many people think that's 
all that it took was Rosa Parks, who was just tired one day to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. And they don't learn about all the behind the scenes work. They don't necessarily learn that Rosa Parks was a longstanding member of the NAACP, that she'd been trained at the Highland Folk School, that if you read King's very first book called Stride Towards Freedom, he talks about all the labor that went into the Montgomery bus boycott organizing carpools, setting up alternative routes so that people could still get to work, sustaining um, the struggle when people were getting tired because it was a year-long boycott. And it's so much more than just that one moment. And then people often think, well, why, why when we go out in the streets and protest, why doesn't it produce the effect that, that we were hoping for? And it's because it's a very simplistic story. So I, I really believe these stories are important to, to share, but they have to be shared with the awareness, not only that what happened in one part of the world might not happen exactly in the same path as you take these ideas and try to adapt them, but also that there's a lot of less glamorous, but highly important work that has to be done beyond just those pivotal moments that make their way into history books. Going back to the first question that I asked about, like, what does it mean to be a sociologist of religion? And I think just listening to you talk and talk about your work, sounds like really you're interested in how ideas and stories grow in groups of people and then how that makes change happen and then how that spreads. Uh, is that another way of saying that in a really simplistic way? Absolutely. The book um, Catholic Social Activism really is a different type of book than I typically write. So as, as a sociologist, often we're trying to theorize what role does religion play in movements? How do movements achieve their goals? But when I was approached by the editor about writing this book, I really was less interested in promoting theories that sociologists could use and much more interested in telling stories. And I knew that the editor was envisioning this book to be used um, at Catholic universities and places where you have a lot of Catholic students who may not know this side of their own tradition. And so it's really less academic and more oriented to just saying, here are stories about how Catholics have addressed labor issues, how they've addressed women's rights issues, something that I think is often not heard about, um, how they have been trying to stop war, how they've been working to protect immigrant rights and refugee rights. And I want to just give those stories so that they knew that there's this other side of Catholicism that they could embrace and that it was rooted within Catholic social teachings. So yes, the stories are important. And it's also important that we don't simplify those stories because otherwise people, I, I saw this during the, the buildup to the, the Gulf War, that people thought if we just go out and protest, then the government will listen to us. So you had, you know, protests happening in cities all over before the invasion of Iraq. But of course, as we know, we still invaded Iraq. And uh, it's because we have to have more savvy strategies and telling the stories are important to inspire people, but they have to be accompanied with an understanding of how those movements work. So I, I see it as my job is doing both of those things, giving stories that can inspire people, but also giving the behind the scenes knowledge of how you strategize to be successful in obtaining some of your goals. A special thank you to Dr. Sharon Erickson Nepstead for sharing her perspective on the influence of religion in social movements. Where We Meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Producers include Colette LaBeouf, Chelsea Reedy, Elise Morion, Ariana Cubillos-Vogler, and Joshua Aragon. Research and writing by Jacqueline Paul. 
Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Where We Meet, we share conversations from New Mexico and beyond. Thanks for listening. Be well. Thank you.